You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Started my year when I was traded in 82, but after I was traded, this was sent to my home. Dear Ron, as a Mets fan and one of your fans, I was very sorry to see you traded to Montreal. You had a great career with the Mets, but you suffered from lack of support and too many no-decision games, which should have ended up in the W column. I wish you the best in Montreal, except when you pitch against the Mets. Sincerely, Dick. Richard Nixon. He signed a dick. <laughs> That's outstanding. He loved the 80 Mets. Um, yes. Just came to a lot of games, and I don't know why I've kept it other than oh, I, don't have any, I don't have any letters from the president. There it is. Yep. Welcome to this special edition of Bridging the Political Gap. And you, we open with a baseball story, and we're going to about Ron Darling, who was traded to the Montreal Expos uh, from the New York Mets. And it's just another classic example of how thoughtful, personally, Richard Nixon was. You know, he's always painted so badly. But Richard Nixon often took the time to reach out to people, uh, whether it was when they lost an election or when they were traded or, or it just... Or, like in the case of his, the son of his chief rival, JFK Jr., a nice note after they finally passed the bar exam, after they've gone through some hard times trying to a couple times. And, uh, you know, he was a huge sports fan. And I thought it was good to show that thoughtfulness uh, to people in this episode. I have a speech here on a football story. When President Nixon spoke to the University of Nebraska after they won the national championship in 1971, some of this stuff is dated, but a lot of this speech is pretty inspirational as he's talking to a group of young people uh, after he gets done awarding the national championship to the coach and to the university. So here is President Nixon talking to a group of young people, college-age students, in 1971 after Nebraska wins the national championship. Mr. President, Mr. Chancellor, Governor Exxon, Senator Curtis, Senator Ruska, all of the distinguished guests in the platform and students, members of the faculty of the University of Nebraska, and I also understand that we have guests here from Nebraska Wesleyan and from Union College. And, <laughs> and friends of the University of Nebraska. I appreciate the honor that has been extended to me to visit this campus and the opportunity to pick up a rain check, in effect. Because Secretary Hardin, two years ago, on the 100th anniversary of this great university, invited me to come to the university uh, at the request of the university officials, and because I had another engagement at that time, I was unable to do so. I told him then that sometime while I was in office, I would come. I wasn't quite sure I could make it. I'm glad I could make it this year in view of what has happened. (laughs) 
And that allows me, before making this award, to tell a little story. You will recall that from time to time, because I am somewhat of a football fan, that I have called football coaches or captains after a great victory and a significant game. And uh, I read a story in one of the Nebraska papers to the effect that immediately after the Orange Bowl game, uh, some of the team were gathered around the phone waiting for the call from the White House. <laughs> it never got through. As a matter of fact, I was not able to make the call because while I had seen the last quarter of the game, which was very exciting, wasn't that something, that last quarter? But in any event, <laughs> it shows what the defense means. But in any event, when we came to the end of the long day of football that day, I had to go on to another engagement. I checked with the White House operator and asked if it might be possible to get through to the dressing room down in Miami. Usually the president can get through on the telephone. <laughs> this time the operator said, well, it'll be just a moment, Mr. President. All the circuits are busy. She said, everybody from Nebraska is calling. I knew that was the case, and I knew that this great team in the University of Nebraska has pride for the whole state, for all the institutions of this state, whatever they may be, and all the people of this state. And I am therefore honored to be here to participate in your pride in that team. Now, having said that, I want you to know that I've gotten into a little trouble over the past couple of years in picking number one teams. <laughs> In 1969, uh, 70, I should recall, the 100th anniversary of college football, you remember that before the bowl games, I said that Texas was number one. And since then, I've never been able to go to Pennsylvania without a passport. <laughs> this year, I didn't make that mistake because I sought and got very good advice. I was in Omaha in the last weeks of October. At that time, Nebraska was number three in the Associated Press poll. And I had already been to Columbus, Ohio, where everybody said Ohio State was number one. I was in Indiana, where everybody told me that Notre Dame was number one. I was in Texas, where everybody told me that Texas was number one. And I was going to be in California, where, of course, all Californians thought that Stanford was number one. And in Arizona, Barry Goldwater said Arizona State was number one. <laughs> and so, with Roman Oreska and Carl Curtis, I said, what should I do? They thought a bit, and finally Carl spoke up, and he said, you know, Mr. President, I would wait until after the bowl games. <laughs> that was vision, real vision. <laughs> and And so in this year of football, a year of many great teams, a year in which many can perhaps rightfully claim to be number one, to come to Nebraska, a great university, clearly apart from its great records and field of athletics, to come here to the only major college team that was undefeated. And to make an award is something that I'm very proud to do proud to recognize this university, to recognize its coach, to recognize its co-captains, to recognize its fine members of the team, and in so doing, to present the plaque from the President of the United States. 
And consequently, at this time, for the official presentation, I would like to have the coach, Bob Devaney, to step forward. something in this state. <laughs> and now the co-captains, co Jerry Murtaugh and Dan Snice, that they would step forward to represent the team. So now read the plaque, which I think will, I understand, will be put in one of the lockers. But in any event, <laughs> the plaque's wording is as follows. The University of Nebraska, 1970 football team, champions of the Big Eight Conference, victor in the 1971 Orange Bowl, and picked by the Associated Press, number one team of the nation. This is the greatest honor that has ever been bestowed upon any athletic team at the University of Nebraska, and I want to thank mm -hmm. the President of the United States very sincerely for taking his time to make this presentation. It means a tremendous lot to all of our players and to our university and to our coaching staff. Thank you. And now if I could come to the other part of my assignment, as was pointed out by your president a moment ago, I wanted to use this opportunity to address a great student body of this university and your guests about some of the problems we have in this nation, common problems for younger people and older people as well. And uh, in beginning my remarks, it's quite 
clear from the feeling in this audience that this is a very exciting time for this university. You're beginning the second hundred years of a very great tradition, and you're beginning it as champions. You can all take pride in your great team. It's a splendid thing to be champion. But a more splendid thing, I believe, is the process by which a team becomes champion. The long struggle through defeat, through doubt, and then on to victory. There's satisfaction here, and for all of us, there are valuable lessons as well. For as vital as the understanding we gain in the classroom is a deeper understanding of ourselves that comes from competing against others and competing against ourselves. In these endeavors, we go beyond awareness of what we are and we discover a higher understanding of what we can be if we know and have the courage and if we have the will. It is in this way that we learn to believe in our dreams. Nothing matters more to the future of this nation than ensuring that our young men and women learn to believe in themselves and believe in their dreams. And that they develop this capacity, that you develop this capacity, so that you keep it all of your lives. As this great university looks to a new century, so does our nation. In this decade, we Americans will celebrate the anniversary of the greatest experiment in liberty the world has ever known. It has succeeded for what in the year 1976 will be 200 years. But like the continued success of this university, the continued success of the American experiment depends on one thing, on the qualities of heart and mind and spirit that our young people bring to both. This nation will not run on inertia. It could fail in one generation or it can last another hundred years or another thousand years. The answer lies in what you and your generation bring to the task of being an America and what you pass on to others. These depend in turn upon what your nation gives to you and gives to you now. And if we are to benefit fully from the energies and the ideals of our young people, we must break down the barriers to the exercise of those energies, the pursuit of those ideals. Let me discuss one of those barriers that I know is on the minds of many of you here and many all over this nation. The war in Vietnam has taken a very heavy toll of our young men. This administration has no higher priority than to end that war, but to end it in a way that we will have a lasting peace. For one thing, I want to end it because this nation has positive priorities right here at home that young men and women now occupied in war could turn their hands to in peace. Beyond this, I have some very personal reasons that I would like to end it. Every week, as President of the United States, I write letters to the parents and the wives or even sometimes the children of men who have given their lives in Vietnam. It's no comfort to me that when I came into office, I wrote 300 of those letters a week, and that this week I will write 27. One is too many. These were precious human lives, and what they might have brought to America in peace, no one will ever know. But there would have been poets among them, and doctors, and teachers, and farmers. 
there would have been builders of America. I want nothing in the world so much as to be able to stop writing those letters. I know you realize, you who have studied history, that every American generation in this century has known war. I want yours to be the first generation in this century to enjoy a full generation of peace. I have a plan which we are implementing to obtain that kind of peace. I can tell you confidently today, it is succeeding. I believe yours will be a generation of peace. And then the question comes, and this is a bigger question, more profound. What will we do with the peace? I am not one of those who believe that we will have instant tranquility when we have peace. I was talking to a European statesman a few months ago about the common problems that we had in both of our countries of student unrest. And he said to me, the problem with your youth is war. The problem with our youth is peace. What he meant, of course, was the challenges of peace are as great as the challenges of war and it's difficult to meet. There needs to be something more than the mere absence of war in life. Young people need something positive to respond to some high enterprise in which they can test themselves, fulfill themselves. We must have great goals, goals that are worthy of us, worthy of our resources, our capacities, worthy of the courage and the wisdom and the will of our people. And we do have such great goals at home in America. Consider, for example, the problems of our environment. Sub to, to subdue the land is one thing, to destroy it is another, and we've been destroying it. And now we must undo what we have done. You must help in this venture. It will require all the dedication you can bring to it, your brains, your energy, your imagination, those special qualities you possess in such abundance. Idealism, impatience, and faith. To preserve the good earth is a great goal. Consider the problems of our cities. Through time, cities have been centers of culture and commerce, and nowhere has this been more true than in America. But today, many of our great cities are dying. We must not let this happen. We can do better than this. We must do better than this. Only if the American city can prosper can the American dream really prevail. Consider the problems of rural America. We are a nation not only of cities, but of towns, of villages and farms. In the soul and substance of rural life in this country, the most abiding values of the American people are anchored. Rural America, too, needs our attention. We must create a new rural environment, a new rural prosperity, which will not only stem the migration from rural areas to the cities, but which will bring people back to the heartland of America. Consider the problems of overpopulation. 
the problems of education, the problems brought about by technology, the problems of achieving full and equal opportunity for all of our people, of health, the problems of prosperity itself, of poverty in a land of plenty. Those are just a few of the challenges that face us. We must face them together. There can be no generation gap in America. The destiny of this nation is not divided into yours and ours. It is one destiny. We share it together. We are responsible for it together. And in the way we respond, history will judge us together. There's been too much emphasis on the differences between the generations in America. There's been too much of a tendency of many of my generation to blame all of your generation for the excesses of a violent few. Let me repeat what I have said over and over again during the past two years. I believe one of America's most priceless assets is the idealism which motivates the young people of America. My generation has invested all that it has, not only its love, but it's hope and it's faith in yours. I believe you will redeem that faith and justify that hope. I believe that as our generations work together, as we strive together, as we aspire together, we can achieve together, achieve great things for America and the world. And so let us forge an alliance of the generations. Let us work together to seek out those ways by which the commitment and the compassion of one generation can be linked to the will and the experience of another so that together we can serve America better and America can better serve mankind. Our priorities are really the same. Together we can achieve them. I pledge to you that as you have faith in our intentions, we will do our best to keep faith with your hopes. Let me cite one of the ways in which I propose to give substance to this alliance between the generations. One thing government must do is to find more effective ways of enlisting the dedication and idealism of those young Americans who want to serve their fellow man. Therefore, I will send a special message to the 92nd Congress asking that the Peace Corps, VISTA, a number of other agencies now scattered throughout the federal government be brought together into a new agency, a new Volunteer Service Corps that will give young Americans an expanded opportunity for the service they want to give, and that will give them what they do not now have offered to them, a chance to transfer between service abroad and service at home. I intend to place this new agency under the dynamic leadership of one of the ablest young men I've ever known, the Peace Corps Director, Joe Batchford. And I intend to make it an agency through which those willing to give their lives and their energy can work at cleaning up the environment combat illiteracy, malnutrition, suffering and blight, either abroad or at home. To the extent that young people respond to this opportunity, I will recommend that it be expanded to new fields, new endeavors. For I believe that government has a responsibility to ensure that the idealism and willingness to contribute of our dedicated young people can be put to constructive use. As we free young Americans from the requirements of the draft and of the war, from the requirements of forced service, let us open the door to voluntary service. And for those who want to serve but cannot devote their full time, the new Center for Voluntary Action 
will open new opportunities for millions of Americans of all ages to the extent they wish to contribute their time, their talents, their heart to building better communities, a better America, a better world. Let me turn now to another way in which you can contribute. You all know that the year 1970, we've taken a step which could have a very dramatic effect on your future and the future of America. We have provided you with the most powerful means the citizen has of making himself felt in a free and democratic society. You now have the right to vote. Today, in a new and exciting and dramatically promising way, you, each of you 18 or over, has a voice in the future of America. The whole history of democracy in this country is a chronicle of the constant broadening of the power to participate. Each new group receiving the franchise has had a beneficial effect on the course of America. Each new group has given freshness and vitality to the purposes of government. And now it's your turn to do the same. So much is in your hands now. To those who have believed the system would not be moved, I say try it. To those who have thought that the system was impenetrable, I say there's no longer a need to penetrate. That door is open. For each of you, as for each of the rest of us, there are going to be some disappointments. There will be defeats. And the hard logic of life, for anyone to win, someone else has to lose. For some to know victory, others have to know defeat. This is part of democracy. For it is in the very nature of a free society that no one can win all the time, no one can have his own way all the time, and no one is right all the time. If we suffer a setback or if we lose on an issue, the answer is not to blame the system, but to look within ourselves to see how we can strengthen our resolve and intensify our effort, or perhaps to see whether the other fellow just might have been right all the time. Defeat, therefore, can be an occasion for learning, for weighing the wisdom of our own purposes, examining the strength of our own resources. I have seen two of Bob Devaney's teams play in the Orange Bowl when they lost. But defeat, instead of disheartening them, brought that experience which later led to victory. I know that there are those who reject politics, who scorn the political life. And I can assure you that politics attracts its share of bad people, but so do all the other professions. This does not reflect on the political system. For politics is a process, not an end in itself. And the process can be as good or as bad as the people that are part of it. It may be tempting to suppose, like the ostrich, that what we choose not to be involved in will therefore not involve us. But we cannot make a separate peace. Not one of us can. We are all committed, whether we choose to be or not. You can reject this. You can come to the task of being in America like Nietzsche's rope makers who pull out their threads in length and themselves are always going backward. Or you can accept the commitment, you can accept the challenge, you can accept the high adventure of being an American citizen. In the end, the history of this time will reflect your choice 
and it will record that you were the first generation of young Americans to be given this chance. And therefore, I urge you to choose well and to choose carefully. There's an old excuse. This is a world that I never made. That won't do any longer. You have now the opportunity, the obligation, the mold that you live in. And you cannot escape this obligation. There is a story of an old and very wise teacher in early Athens. There was no question the teacher could not answer. There seemed to be nothing in life the old man did not understand. And finally, one of his students hit upon a way to defeat the old man's wisdom. The student determined that he would catch a bird and hold it concealed in his hands. He would ask the old man to guess what he was holding. If the old man guessed it was a bird, then the boy would make him say whether the bird was alive or whether it was dead. And if the teacher guessed that the bird was dead, the boy would open his hands and let the bird go, free and alive. But if the wise man guessed that the bird was alive, then the boy would crush out its life and open his hands to reveal a dead bird. And so it progressed, just as the boy had planned, until he asked the wise man, is the bird alive or is it dead? And the old man said, my son, the answer to that question is in your hands. In your hands now rests the question of the future of this nation, of its promise of progress and prosperity, of the dream of democracy and the future of freedom, of whether men can continue to be governed by human wisdom. And I believe that these things rest in good hands. And that as we put our hands together, your generation and mine, in the alliance we forge, we can discover a new understanding, a community of wisdom, a capacity for action with which we can truly renew both the spirit and the promise of this great and good land we share together.
Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.